Good morning, folks. Thanks for joining us at Billmore Church Online. If you are watching this message today, you are probably dealing with a winter storm. All right, so we've had a winter storm warning here in Western North Carolina. So wherever you're watching from, hope you're safe and warm. Again, whether you're in Western North Carolina or whether you're watching from other parts of the globe, thank you so much for joining us. We've been in a series called a Tale of Two Kingdoms, and we're going to kind of put that on the shelf for one week. Uh, we'll start that back again next week, and really the next two weeks are going to be the kingdom of God and gender, and so that'll be next week. But for today, uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 19, all right? Psalm 19, uh, any good Bible teacher at all, they have a, one of their primary goals is to whet your appetite. It's to help you, equip you, encourage you, resource you to actually be able to read your Bible for yourself, all right? How do I actually get in there? The number one reason that people do not read their Bible, that at least over years of looking at this and listening to people is I don't understand it because somewhere between the genealogies and the difficult geography and the hard to pronounce names, they just kind of get bogged down and think, you know what, this thing isn't for me. This, I can't understand it. I don't know where it's going. I don't know how to, to look at that. So before we jump into Psalm 19, I want to take about three or four minutes and give you what in some ways is kind of the key or a key to understanding the Bible. And that is actually, I want to do a flyby on the structure of the Bible. In other words, how's the Bible actually uh, put together? And forgive me for the notes, uh, because it was a winter storm warning, I was actually right. This thing is fresh off the press, didn't even have a place where I could print it or uh, put it in nice order. So forgive me for that. But let me talk to you about the structure of the Bible, how the Bible was put together. For some of you, you're brand new to Bible study. Others of you are old veterans, but I think you'll still have a couple of things that'll help you as well. So in its most basic sense, the Bible, the Bible is, is got two basic divisions, all right? First part of it is called the Old Testament, and the second part of it is called, it's called the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament is basically from the creation story and then it's the story of uh, the Jewish people up until uh, the time of Christ. And when you look at that, there's 39 books. There are 28 different authors. And then it's approximately about 2,000 years or covers that. Probably the easiest thing to think about or the way that you can kind of figure out your way around the Old Testament is to think about those 39 books are broken down into basically three kinds, three different kinds of books. All right, there is the historical, there is the poetic, and then there is the prophetical. So when you look at it, the first 17 books are known, they're, they're in a section called the historical section. So what would, you, what would you think you would find in the historical section? History, that's what you would find. And so when you look at it, the first 17 books, basically from the first book, Genesis, over to Esther, are known as the historical books. It gives the history of the nation of Israel. And then you've got a second section called uh, the poetic section or books of poetry. And there's five there. And what would you expect to find in the poetic section? Poetry. All right. Poetry. Uh, whether that be Proverbs or Job or Song of Solomon. All right. Those are books of poetry. Then the third section is called the prophetical section. So what would you think you would find in that third section, the prophetical section? Prophets. All right. Prophets. Prophecy. And what those were doing, one of the things that's sometimes important to understand is that poetry and prophecy are actually in the same time frame as the first section, the history section. So they're writing, whether it be poetry or prophecy, during that history that is covered in the first, in the first 17 books, okay? All right, that's Old Testament. 
So quick thing about the New Testament. New Testament, birth, New Testament is basically from Jesus' birth, his life and his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then it goes on to his disciples or his apostles and then their ministry. This only covers less, it covers less than 100 years. And just like in the Old Testament, there are three sections, the way that it is laid out in your Bible, there's three sections there as well. The first one, like, like the Old Testament, is historical. These are the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. And you would expect in the historical section to find history. That's what you would find. The second section is called the Pauline Epistles. The Pauline Epistles, there's a guy named the Apostle Paul, and he wrote many, many of those books. There's actually 13 that are authored by the Apostle Paul. And then the third section is called the General Epistles. These were letters that were written uh, by various authors to different churches, okay? And so you put all those things together, and what you've got is you've got 27 books uh, nine different authors, again, covering less than a hundred years. Now, when it comes to the Bible, most of the Bible, well, yeah, most of the Bible, most of the Bible is like simple math. Two plus two equals four. There's definitely parts of the Bible that are like algebra. It's like, what does that mean? What is, how do you even pronounce that name? What's going on in that culture? And so what we want to do is either way, when you look at the structure, it's going to help you find your way around. And the reason that's super important is if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus was all about the Bible. He quoted it. He memorized it. He argued with people on how to interpret it. He prayed it. He, he uh, All those different things. As a matter of fact, he actually says in one of his sermons, he said, there is not a jot or a tittle, which are the two smallest punctuation marks in the Hebrew language. It's like a comma or a colon. He said, not a single one of those things referring to the Old Testament, not a single one will pass away until all of them are fulfilled. And so Jesus was very serious about the Bible. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you also want to be super, super serious uh, about the Bible as well. And by the way, if you're not a Christian and you're watching this, thanks for joining us. But man, it's like the best-selling book of all time every single year. And just jump in there and, and read it, and we feel confident God will speak to you. But what I want to try to do for the next like 15 minutes is uh, try, to give, try to motivate you by showing you the benefits of actually just reading the Bible. Seven reasons why you ought to read the Bible. If you're like OCD or ADD like I am, it's like you've got to have, somebody wrote me this week and said, I love it when you went back to the points. Instead of just talking, you went back to the points. And so if that's you, this is your day because there's actually seven, all right? And so Psalm 19, all, all, it's all about the Bible. It uses words like law, testimony, commandments, precepts. But all of us just talk, it's all talking about the Bible. And it's talking about the benefits of the Bible. Like if you get a job and they give you a great benefit package, that's a huge deal. And you get health insurance, you get life insurance, you get retirement, you get whatever. That's an enormous part. And that, that is like, that's a great benefit. What, what the psalmist does is he gives you in the back half of Psalm 19, he gives you at least seven benefits of just simply picking up your Bible and reading it or using an app like the Dwell app and listening to the Bible on your daily commute. And so I'm gonna go through these pretty quick and uh, just seven reasons to read your Bible. So uh, Psalm 19, verse seven says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And by the way, this is just, old, this is just Bible teaching. Every single one of these points just comes out of these verses and we'll work our way along. So it says the law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do? It revives the soul. So point number one, you pick up your Bible, you read your Bible, you listen to your Bible, it will revive your soul. The word revive there means it's the idea of vitality. It's the idea of refreshment. It's the idea of something that is kind of beat down is all of a sudden refreshed, restored, revived. And so that's what the soul can get. The soul is that immaterial part of you. 
that part that thinks and feels and relates to God. And that part of you, that real part of you, that's who you are at your core, that can get beaten down. That can get, that can get shamed, that can get tired, that can get discouraged, that can get depressed. And what he's saying is just picking up the book and reading it can revive that inside part of you. Now, how does it do that? The best way it does it, the biggest way it does is it just gives you the big picture, the big meta narrative of the Bible is it does so by saying, listen, I'm gonna remind you of the gospel about what Jesus did and what Jesus still does for you now. A great, um, there's a word called exegesis. Exegesis just means I'm gonna get the points out of it. All right, ex is out of, and so the idea is, okay, what's the Bible about? Now, Jesus actually answers this question when he says this in John chapter five, pretty key verse that is good to understand just Bible study in its basics. John chapter five, verse 39 says, the scriptures, the scriptures, he's talking particularly about the Old Testament. He's like, the scriptures, they bear witness about me. So Jesus is saying, listen, all this Old Testament is actually, it is the story of Israel, but it's also the whole thing is pointing in shadow or prophecy or picture. It's pointing to me. And so one of the great questions you can ask when you're reading your Bible is, what does this text, no matter where you are, what does this text tell me about Jesus, about who he is, about his character, about his love for me? What is this telling me? But one of the things you're just doing that will revive your soul. That's number one. All right, number two, it makes me wiser. Second part of that verse says this, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, wisdom just seems like kind of a crazy old school word. Wisdom, think about it this way. Wisdom in the Bible is just biblical common sense. It's being able to take the principles of the Bible and then apply them to our everyday life. Things like money and marriage and, 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 and communication and business and all of that. How do I take this and then put it into my everyday life? That's what wisdom is. And he says it makes wise the simple. Now, the important part about simple there, simple doesn't mean a low IQ. It just means somebody who lacks discernment. It's the idea of your mind is so open, the brain falls out, and you don't discern. You make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so getting in the Bible, what it does is it shows us what is wisdom. The God of the universe shows us what's going to work best. All right, don't do that. That last time you went down that road, you got hurt. And most of us can identify the biggest regrets in our life. I certainly can. The biggest regrets in my life are when I have ignored something that God was trying to show me or tell me that was right there, either a principle to obey, a precept to follow, a promise to claim, something like that. And I either rushed right by it and then went right into the ditch. Um, here's what I would say. Think about it like this way. If you, you've got an omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign God of the universe, and so he can see everything at all times, both the past, the future, and the present. And he understands this is going to happen, this is going to happen. It's like when he gives us his words, think about it this way. Uh, if you're in Western North Carolina, you would think Highway 26. If you were in uh, other plates like Atlanta, maybe I-95. What the Bible is, is the Bible can look ahead like a GPS and say, there is a wreck down the road. It's maybe four miles down the road. You can't see it but it's there. I'm gonna give you a better route around that so you don't get caught up in that wreckage. That's what the Bible does. It just makes us wiser, makes us make better choices more of the time. Again, we've all made dumb choices. We're all one step away from stupid, but what we wanna do is make wiser decisions more of the time, and that's what the Bible helps us with. That's number two. Number three, verse eight, it gives me joy. It says the, it says the precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart. Man, is that not something we all need? Is that not something this world needs is just, is joy. 
And it says the precepts are right. It means correct. It means it doesn't sway back and forth uh, with the cultural winds. Is that, and it's, it's a reminder, listen, God's for you. God is for your joy. God is for your joy. God is for that. There's nothing wrong with thinking this. God want me to be happy. He does. He just wants it to be a deeper than just, because happiness is just based on the current circumstances that you have. But joy is deeper than that. It's like an internal happiness. Listen to me. The number one lie, the number one lie that your enemy will throw towards you. You see it in the Garden of Eden right off the bat in the book of Genesis. The number one lie that he will put towards you is basically could be framed of saying, you know what? God is not for you. God is not out for your joy. God is not out for your good. The way he said it to Adam and Eve, when, when, when God said, listen, enjoy the garden, subdue it, cultivate it, enjoy it, be fruitful and multiply. All I'm telling you to do is avoid the one tree. In other words, when he said avoid the one tree, he was really saying help yourself to all these other awesome trees. In other words, there's all this awesome stuff out there. Just don't get to that one because that one will hurt you. That one will damage you. That one will scar you. That one will be, that, was, that is not a good path at all. It's not that he wasn't for their joy, but the lie was from the enemy, you know what? God's not serious about that. God's not really, God's withholding from you because he knows that way you'll actually kind of, you'll be like him. So the number one lie of the enemy, whether it be about money or sex or anything else is, listen, God is not really for you. Listen, you don't die for somebody you're not for. And so when you look at this, God is not upset that you want to be happy. He just knows that those substitutes, those substitutes in the culture, those substitutes in our world, that will not lead to lasting happiness. Here's what I think about it. I've got a, I got a dog named Ranger. I've used, I use him in illustrations. It's been a while though. <clears throat> when, I think of, when I think of this, I think of somehow, and again, I know I make fun of cats all the time, but I've never seen a cat do this. But my dog, as smart as he is, he's got like a higher IQ than most people I know. He will still to this day, he will go and he will drink out of the toilet. I'm talking about it. He'll put his head completely in that thing and he'll drink and drink and drink. And he'll, he thinks it's so amazing. I mean, he thinks this is great. And the whole time, I've tried to train him out of it. I can't train him out of it. The whole time he's got this awesome sparkling water right over there in his bowl. It's super clean and super fresh and it's been through the Berkey. So it's been filtered and all this stuff. And even though that's right there, he goes over to the toilet and you're like, well, that's a dumb dog. It's really not because we do the same thing. All right, as a matter of fact, the Old Testament says we oftentimes go to those, <clears throat> he calls them broken cisterns, wells, substitutes for God. So God is not against your joy. God is for your joy. He just knows that the lasting joy is found in him. And he says, this is the way to human flourishing. All right, so uh, number four, look down to verse eight again. He says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then verse nine says this, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Number four. When I read my Bible, he shows me truth. When I read my Bible, he shows me truth. When it says enlightening the eyes, probably the best way you might underline that, it's like um, the old cartoons. When I was a kid, we'd watch it, and sometime when the, you know, when the idea would hit, it's like they would put a light bulb over the cartoon character's head. And the idea was the whole, the light, okay, the light bulb went on. I understand that now. And that's what, that's what happens here. This is what theologians call progressive sanctification. 
Progressive sanctification. Now, here's an important truth, just a, an important Bible truth. If you're a Christ follower, the moment you came to faith in Christ, a bunch of amazing stuff happened. You got adopted. The Bible says you got adopted into God's family as a son or daughter of Almighty God, that you were actually made positionally holy. You were redeemed. You were reconciled to God. Jesus took your sin and took it on himself on the cross, took his righteousness and put it over into your account. Tons of amazing stuff happened. You got given a new heart, the Bible says. The Bible says God put a new song in your mouth. The problem, the one thing that is not new when you come to faith in Christ is you do not get a new mind. You don't get a new mind, not automatically. And so that's why the Bible says that be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, here's the deal. If you come to faith in Christ late, there are a lot of patterns in your mind that have had plenty of time to get very much at home. And so the way that we become sanctified, sanctifying just means to be set apart. It's you get, there's salvation, that's when you come to faith in Christ. There is sanctification, that's what happens right now when you walk with the Lord. And the way that happens is he's, got to, he's, he's renewing your mind. Eventually, there's going to be glorification when you get to go to heaven, but that's not right now. And so the way you get sanctified is by actually renewing your mind. The way you renew your mind is actually getting in this book. And here are the, the reason that is, one of the big reasons is, is you have an enemy that will lie to you. God doesn't love you. God's not for you. Um, you're never going to be any different. Um, you're not, you're, you know, you're not, you're not valuable uh, unless you're beautiful. All those things. And you've got to be able to have some kind of truth to put in there. You know, that last one would be Psalm 139 would be a great one. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The part I want to point out to you in verse 10, though, says this. It says, it is more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So you might be saying, man, I wish I could, but to be honest with you, Bruce, I don't even want to. I mean, I kind of like your jokes and I kind of like the way you make it understandable, but for me to actually get in here during the week, so let me, let me kind of break that little thing down for you. Because it says here, it says that, that they may desire it more to be desired than they are gold. They are gold. Now, what I'm trying to do is show you that this is more valuable than gold. If I said, hey, you got a $100 bill underneath your seat, it would not take much motivation at all for you to reach in there and grab it. And what the psalmist is saying is this is even better than that. So I'll give you, here's a breakdown real quick kind of a journey that you have to go through numerous times during your life. One of them just put, I want to desire it. And maybe you're here and you're like, you know what? I want to, I want to desire, but, and if you don't be honest with God about it, seriously, some of you all are like, you know what? I hadn't read the Bible in a long time on my own. I don't want God to be mad. Listen, God already knows about that. This would be a great time to just confess your heart to God. God, I, I, I don't even want it. I want to want it, but I don't want it. And the reason that shows up, it's been a long time, so you actually just got in there and read or listened and just and say, God, I have a cold heart. I want to desire it. That's the first thing. I would say the second little step in that is you've got to put some kind of discipline on the front end that is not going to necessarily be easy. It'd be like uh, if you hadn't worked out in the gym for a long, long time or run in a long, long time and you start back, those first few runs are not that fun. They're not that fun. They're kind of painful. You're a little bit sore the next day. But then once you do it the third week and the fourth week and the fifth week and the sixth week, and all of a sudden you take those atrophied muscles and you begin to work them, pretty soon you get runner's high. You just can't even almost go a day without that workout. In the same way spiritually, if you hadn't been in the Bible in a long time, your muscles, your spiritual muscles have atrophied. And so it's going to take some discipline. Get a buddy that will hold you accountable. Hey, what would you learn today? 
That's the best, but once you get into it three, four weeks down the road, it is just like, I, how do I even go a day without it? And that's what he says here. He's like, I delight in this. It's better than honey. It's better than a honeycomb. And so delight is like, this is sweet. This is sweet. Okay, let me do my last couple. Look at verse 11. All right, verse 11 and 12 talk about it. It convicts me of my sin. Verse 11 says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In other words, hey, careful, don't go down there. And in keeping them, there is great, there is great reward. But who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden false. All right, warning again is saying danger, don't go down there. But it says, who will discern this? He calls them presumptuous sins. It's that subtle stuff that's not like super obvious. That's the stuff like ego and pride and lust and um, greed, those kind of things. One of the things important to understand is if you're a Christ follower, both the Holy Spirit and your enemy will point out your sin for very different motivations and very different reasons. The enemy points those things out to condemn you, to help you feel hopeless and helpless, like things will not ever change and you will never be different. And would a real Christian actually do that? And it's trying to beat you down, all right? When the Holy Spirit convicts you, he's trying to bring you up. He's trying to pick you up. He's trying to call you back up to the identity that God has actually given you when you, had, when you, when you gave your life to Christ. And so when you look at that, the Holy Spirit is not to, uh, he is trying to protect you. He's trying to give you your joy back. The fact he's going to remind you that the price for that sin has already been paid. And since it's been paid and you have been proclaimed righteous and holy and just and all, all those things, he is trying to pull you back up. That's what the, the proverb says. You know what? A righteous man will fall seven times. So you're going to fall. You just want to get back up, dust yourself off, go back to the gospel and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So um, let me give you two more. Verse 13. Verse 13 says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion. That's a key word, dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Number six, it sets me free. Dominion. Dominion means in chains. It's in bondage. It means you feel like and act like you do not have, you don't have, you don't have a choice. The Bible term for a sin that has left you helpless and hopeless is called a stronghold. It's something that typically it started off and maybe it was, you know, you were pretty sensitive to it, but then over a period of time and yielding to that sin, it got a, a grip on you. So you don't feel like anything can ever be different at all. And the way that we get out of that, one of the tools is right here is, is in the word. That's why John chapter eight says this, Jesus says this, it's good news, bad news. It's actually bad news, good news. Okay. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The assumption there is that they were not free that they were in bondage. And in the same way, it says the way you get out, the way you get out is if you understand the truth. And listen to me, loved ones, the way you can understand the truth is you gotta get in here. Ephesians chapter six says this. It says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now a little lesson for you right here. It's the only offensive weapon, by the way, that's mentioned in that whole spiritual warfare thing. But when it says, which is the word of God, there's two words, there's two words in the original language for word. There's a broad sense, and it's logos, L-O-G-O-S. That's like the word of God, like the Bible, okay? That's it. That's actually not the word he uses in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, he uses the word rhema, which literally means a word from the word. It means I'm going to take a small part of the word from the bigger part of the word and then apply it to my situation. 
It's very much what Jesus did in the, in, the, in the wilderness temptations in Matthew chapter four. Temptation came in a certain way and then he handpicked words and he applied them to his situation to provide clarity, to put truth to that. So you and I could do the same thing. All right, last one. Last one, this is probably the one verse, if you have never read Psalm 19 or not familiar with it, this is the one you might've heard because they've written some songs about it. And so verse 14 talks about that the word personalizes my prayer. Verse 14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Notice how he's getting personal now. Before it was like, the word is this, the commandments are this. Now he's like, you're my rock, you're my redeemer. This is something I'm talking, he's talking to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So here's the one, one of the things that you do, prayer and Bible go hand in hand. Prayer and Bible study go hand in hand. So the way you want to do is you want to read your Bible and then talk to God about it. Read your Bible, talk to God about it. And it's almost like a carrying on a conversation. You read something and you pray to God about it. Like today, you might be reading Psalm 19 and it's like, all right, God, who should I, who would be a good person to kind of keep me accountable for the next couple of weeks as I start to work out my spiritual muscles? Uh, those kind of things. So, uh, but it personalizes. Here's, here's, the, here's the picture. If you go on an airplane much, if you, if you have to travel either early in the morning or late at night when it's dark outside, and you want to read, you, there's like a little light up here and it just shines on your seat. And it's shining on your seat to illuminate your seat. It's not even doing the guy next to you. It's your seat. And so a lot of times what happens is when you're reading the Bible, God will take a word from the word and then illuminate it just in your life. In other words, Bruce, this is what I'm talking about in your relationship with this person or your relationship with Lori or the way that we want you to act this way. Or, or I want to remind you of the promise and the fact that your identity is in me. Whatever that is, it's, it personalizes it. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. If you're a follower, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, take some time before the Super Bowl or after the Super Bowl or during the Super Bowl, whichever one, during halftime, read Psalm 19. Just read it, read it, read it a couple times. You don't have to get out, of, you don't have to get out your concordance. You don't have to get out your word studies. Just, just, just read it a few times. And, uh, and then maybe tomorrow set an alarm a little bit earlier than you normally would and then get up and spend a little time with the Lord. Um, again, uh, if you're not a believer, Again, as I said before, pick it up. It's the best-selling book of all time. There's one message, and that is that Jesus came on a rescue mission for you. If you don't know any other verse, you've probably seen this, those guys, crazy guys at the state sports stadiums. You probably see it at the Super Bowl, and they'll hold up that John 3.16. And that one simply says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. And that's the message of the Bible. The word believe there is the word pistuo, which means I'm going to trust in or I'm going to surrender to or I'm going to put my weight on. And for you, if you're not a Christ follower, and, and maybe you're like, man, it's, I, never, I never knew I had a God that loved me and died for me and paid for my sin. What John 3.16 reminds us is if you will place your trust in Jesus, even right now, right where you're sitting in your living room or coffee shop or wherever you are, if you right now would simply say, I believe that what Jesus did on the cross somehow counted for me, that when he said it is finished or Father forgive them, they don't know what they do, that somehow that counted for me. I wanna surrender my life for the Lordship of Christ. Based on this book, it actually says those who call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And so you can do that right now. Just pray to him, dear God, thank you for taking the sin, taking my sin on yourself. Would you please forgive me? Cleanse me, make me the person you want me to be as I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. 
all right? If you made that decision, we'd love to know about it. You can put it in the comment section below or say, hey, please somebody call me, those kind of things, but put that in the comment section below. We would know, we would love to uh, know that. All right, let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, thank you for uh, the word. It is, there's so much stuff in just a handful of verses. And so I wanna pray for the Christian that you would revive their walk uh, through the word, that you would give them a hunger, that they've actually, you know, more than they've ever felt, a hunger to actually read and listen to the love story that you are communicating to them. For the people that are, are not Christ followers, I pray that you would help them get in there and read and that you would speak to them and reveal yourself to them. And for the people that just gave their life to Christ, I pray that as they read, maybe starting in the Gospel of John, about the ministry that you have and the ministry that you had and the love that you have for them, you would open up and enlighten their eyes and fill them with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.